Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, my dear sisters and brothers in Christ. You know, when I was in school uh, learning how to write and preach a sermon, our professors would oftentimes tell us this. They would say, There are thousands and thousands of sermons found in each Bible text. Which was really a comforting thing to hear. First of all, it relieved a lot of the pressure. The pressure that as a preacher, you have to find that one hidden magical text or or sermon in every text. No, there are countless, limitless sermons that can be preached. But even more than that, it was comforting because it was a reminder to us just how vast and how bottomless the Word of God is. You can mine the depths, but never reach the end. You cannot exhaust the message of Scripture. When it comes to preaching a sermon, there is no greater day of the year to be a preacher than on Easter Sunday. But if there was a close second, I think it might be today. And the reason that I say that is because of the text that is before us every year on this Second Sunday of Easter, our second celebration, our rerun of last week. And it's the words that we just heard earlier in our gospel from John chapter 20. A text on which thousands and thousands of sermons can and should be preached. So here's one. It's the evening of that first Easter Sunday, and ten of the disciples are hiding behind locked doors out of fear. They're afraid for obvious reasons. They're afraid that what just happened to Jesus is now soon going to happen to them. They're afraid that because Jesus was arrested and suffered and died, that soon they too will be arrested, suffer, and die. And not only do those disciples show in their fear that they don't believe in the general concept, the general teaching of the resurrection from the dead, otherwise they would be approaching potential death with much less fear, They showed that they also didn't believe that Jesus had bodily walked out of his tomb earlier that same day. Despite the fact that women went to the tomb, saw that it was empty, some of those women even saw Jesus himself, came and reported it to the disciples, despite the fact that two of those disciples, Peter and John, went to see the empty tomb for themselves, despite all of those things, they still don't believe it. They're simply afraid. They're afraid to suffer and they're afraid to die. So they run to find refuge in the only place that they have left, each other, behind locked doors, which is where Jesus comes to meet them. 
And how Jesus is this. He doesn't even use the door. Jesus just comes and stands among them. If you look at that Easter Sunday and then the the subsequent appearances of Jesus to his disciples that follow, I think there are like 14 events where Jesus appears to his disciples and to other believers and almost all of them read the exact same way. All of a sudden there was a group of people and then there was Jesus. He, He just shows up. He just appears wherever these people are. Theologians have tried to wrap their heads around what kind of presence is this that Jesus is showing. And here's how they describe it. They call it the translocal mode of Christ's presence. The translocal mode of presence. Which is just kind of a really fancy way of saying we have no clue how he does it. We're not even really sure what it means. But we know this much. It means that Jesus is not a ghost. He's not just some sort of bodiless spirit that can just float through walls. No, Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he says to his disciples, look at me. Luke's account of this same event goes into even more details. Jesus says, I have flesh, I have bones, just like you do. Give me a piece of food and I'll eat it in front of you. Ghosts don't do that. Side note, this is also how we answer questions like, okay, how can Jesus be bodily present in Holy Communion on millions of altars Sunday morning at the same time? The same way that Jesus can, in his body, in his flesh and bones, appear to his disciples despite despite them hiding behind locked doors. I don't know the physics of it, but this is what Jesus promises. And this is what the resurrected Jesus does. And then Jesus says to his disciples those beautiful words, those words that I, I got to think they never thought they would hear Jesus say to them again. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side because, brothers and sisters, that is where our peace is found. In the wounds of Jesus Christ, Not in a bare cross or an empty tomb. You'll notice in just a few moments, this is what Thomas demands to see. This is the proof. This is the evidence. He doesn't run and go see an empty cross. He doesn't run back and look at an empty tomb. He wants to see the flesh and blood, the wounds of Jesus. Because it is by those wounds, the prophet Isaiah told us, we are healed. The disciples are overjoyed. And how could they not be? Their fear began to melt. Their hearts started to fill with joy. Their sorrow is overcome with peace. But Jesus isn't done. He says it again. Peace be with you. And then he adds what I think were some initially terrifying words. Jesus says to the disciples, As the Father has sent me, 
so I am sending you. And I wonder if they didn't say it out loud, if some of the disciples were at least thinking to themselves, yeah, that's kind of what we were afraid of. Jesus, the Father sent you to suffer. He sent you to die. He sent you to give your life for the salvation of the world. The Father sent you from heaven above to earth below to do and endure all of these things. And now you're telling us that you're sending us out to do the same? I'm not so sure. But Jesus clarifies it. He's not sending his disciples out to die for the sins of the world. Jesus already did that. The atonement is accomplished. Forgiveness of sins is won. The it is finished that Jesus preached from his cross still stands. No, Jesus is sending his disciples not to do the very things Jesus did. He is sending out his disciples to dispense the very gifts that Jesus won. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus sends out his disciples, sends out his church to forgive sins and to not forgive sins. This is the resurrected Lord's gift of absolution, which we've already witnessed and received this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, look, your job is not to die. That was my job. Your job is to forgive the sins of the penitent and to refuse forgiveness to the impenitent. Jesus says this, and then he's gone. He disappears just as quickly and as easily as he came. And the text tells us that Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus appeared. But later that evening, after Jesus left, Thomas comes back. Now, here's the question. Where was Thomas? What was he doing? Why was he not there? We don't know. But I wonder if there aren't some dots we can connect. Again, one thing we do know is why the ten disciples were together hiding behind those locked doors, because they were terrified. So, Maybe we can surmise the reason that Thomas wasn't there is because Thomas wasn't afraid. Or at the very least, Thomas was able to overcome his fear enough that he could leave the locked room and walk about in public. Now we all know and we all remember Thomas as the doubter because of what he's about to say and that's fine. But we should also remember the first time we met Thomas in the Gospels. He's not the doubter. In fact, he's the courageous one. It's when Jesus and his disciples had just learned the the news that Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus has just died. And Jesus says, we got to go back to Jerusalem because I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And and all of the disciples say, you know, Jesus, um, the last time you were in Jerusalem, um, the Jewish leaders tried to have you stoned. Maybe we should give it a little time because I think they're even more angry and upset with you now than they were then. There's not a chance you make it out alive. But Thomas stepped forward. And you remember what he said? 
Thomas said, if Jesus goes, we all go. And if we die, we die. You see, that wasn't a day that Thomas was the doubter. That was Thomas the courageous. That was Thomas the bold. That was Thomas the willing to die. Thomas the unafraid. Thomas the one who didn't doubt Jesus, but was willing to follow Jesus no matter what. So where was Thomas that night? We don't know. But maybe the women came back and told him that that the tomb was empty. So maybe he went to go check it out for himself. The women told him that they saw the resurrected Jesus. Maybe he was racing through the streets of Jerusalem to see if he could find him himself. The point being, Thomas is the only one who appears to not be afraid that night. Who at least initially had some sort of faith that Jesus could possibly be alive. And then what happens? Thomas gets back, and the ten timid ones, the ten who were too afraid to leave behind that little self-made prison that they had, had fashioned for themselves, Jesus comes and appears to them, and not to Thomas. What would your reaction be? Jesus, you couldn't have waited like five more minutes? If you, you have this translocal mode of presence, you can come and go as you please. Couldn't you just come back? Couldn't you appear for me? I'm the only one who was out there looking for you. I'm the only one who had the guts to leave, the faith to trust. And you appeared to them and not to me? No. The disciples were so excited to tell Thomas. And then Thomas comes, and they can't contain their joy. I imagine all of the disciples, as soon as he knocked on the door and came in, I imagine all of the disciples immediately talking to him at once, and it being one of those situations where Thomas had to say, whoa, 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 slow down. One at a time. What happened? Jesus came and appeared among you? Yeah, Jesus came. He's alive. He showed us his hands and his side. It's true. What the women said was real. That's why the tomb was empty. And Thomas's shock turns to anger, which turns to unbelief. As the disciples' excitement grows, you can kind of see it, can't you? Thomas's frustration grows with it. You hear the escalation in what he says. Until I see the nails. No, until I touch his, no, until I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Can you imagine the tension in that room? The ten disciples who are trying to contain their excitement and their joy, whispering to each other on one side of the room, and on the other side of the room, there sits Thomas, stewing. That he missed it. And this wasn't just a couple of minutes. It wasn't just a couple of hours. It was like that for eight days. Eight long days of sitting and waiting. You could believe that Thomas was not going to leave that house again. 
Until finally, on the next Sunday, Jesus appears, appears again. And it's like a rerun. The doors are locked, and yet Jesus appears. And he greets them with those beautiful words, Peace be with you. But this time he has something just for Thomas. All right. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand into my side. Don't be unbelieving, is what Jesus says. Be believing. And Thomas, I imagine, weeping with joy, responds with one of the greatest confessions of faith ever mouthed in human history. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And now I imagine all of the disciples are weeping. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news for Jesus. Now it's not just good news for the ten. Now it's good news for Thomas. And they can finally all celebrate together. And then Jesus gives a slight rebuke to Thomas, but a blessing for you. He says, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet are believing. And then, even though John has a whole other chapter in his gospel, he closes out this chapter, chapter 20, with words that summarize not just the account of Easter, not just the gospel of John, but really all of Scripture. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All scripture is inspired, written, recorded, and preserved for this purpose, to point you to Christ and to bring you to faith in Christ. That by believing, you too would be raised to live a new life, a life that has no end. Now, what do we do with this text? As I mentioned earlier, there are thousands of sermons here, and there are probably just as many things that you could take away from this text. But here are a couple I hope that you take home with you today. First of all, that Jesus is present with us in a different way than he was present with the disciples before his resurrection. Think about it. When Thomas comes back and makes his demands, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. They and all of the other disciples, Thomas, wrongly assumed that Jesus had left. They thought for eight days that Jesus had left them alone and they were just sitting and waiting for his presence to return. But as it turns out, Jesus was there the whole time, listening to every word. Because when he comes back, he repeats and he shows and he reveals to Thomas using the same exact words that Thomas had given in his ultimatum. The exact same words. Jesus says, here, your finger. You said you wanted to put it where the nails were. Here you go. Thomas, last week I was listening. You said you wanted to put your hand into my side. Go for it. Here it is. And Thomas realizes that despite his inability to see Jesus, 
He really was there, truly present the whole time. Friends, as it was in that room, behind locked doors, so it is with us. Jesus' ascension does not mean that he has left us or that he's somehow far away from us. On the contrary, Jesus promises to always be with us, even to the very end of the age. He promises, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. No, the risen Jesus is here, right now, with us, just as he was there with those disciples in that room. And not just when they could see him, but for all the moments and all of the days in between and ever since. He's with us where he promises to be, in his word, in his sacraments. Not just in your thoughts or your memories as you remember him, but he is always with you, always helping you, always protecting you, always keeping you together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And with his presence, he brings gifts. Gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And here's the second thing I hope you take home with you today. That one of those gifts that he comes to bring is peace. This is always what he's talking about after his resurrection. He says it to almost everybody. He says, peace be with you. Which is such a monumental gift when you think about it. This life, this world is full of troubles. We all know that. We all experience them. We all wrestle with sin. We all have a sinful nature. All of us live in this world and are tempted by it. All of us are attacked and accused by the devil. All of us mourn losses in different ways. We experience differing amounts of pain and agony. We all have different fears. And yet, all we need is one peace. To overcome them all. And it's the peace that Jesus promises to give us. And this peace is not just a metaphysical thing. It's not just a mind over matter kind of thing. No, this peace, Jesus says, is not like the peace this world offers us. This peace, his peace, the peace that Jesus gives is always, always, always about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus breathes on his disciples, breathes out the Holy Spirit on them. This picture should take you back to the creation where the Lord breathed his life-giving breath into Adam and the man became a living being. So here Jesus breathes onto his disciples and his church becomes the living body of Christ. And to do what? For what purpose? To forgive sins. Jesus sends out his disciples, sends out pastors, sends out Christians to forgive sins. That really happened earlier. When I spoke those words of absolution, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are forgiven. Your sins, all of them, really have been sent away by the word of Christ. But I'm not the only one who can do that. Every Christian, including you, has this authority. Friends, we have to know that. We have to remember that, especially in our homes. That one of the greatest acts of love shared between a husband and wife is to forgive one another's sins. 
that one of the most important things that you will ever teach or give to your children, mom and dad, is the forgiveness of sins. That you, grandma and grandpa, are constantly forgiving your grandparent or grandchildren's sins, not just winking at them and nodding them and saying, well, mom and dad can deal with that. Kids, this is important for you to do with your parents. They're not perfect, and I hope they admit that to you. They need you to forgive their sins. That this is what every Christian is called to do. To forgive the sins of our neighbor, of our co-worker. You know, as Christians, we're probably known best for the things that we are against, right? But what if we were known most for this? That in a cancel culture world, these are the people who just can't wait to forgive you. That in a world with a digital memory, with unlimited storage space, these are the people who will forgive your wickedness and who will remember your sins no more. That these Christians are so filled with peace, you can hardly have a conversation with them without it spilling out of them. And it's not just the sins that people commit against you. We should forgive those too. But anytime you encounter someone with a guilty conscience, anytime you meet someone who is struggling over how they have broken God's law, remember this, that you have been given the same Holy Spirit that was given to those disciples in that room for the very same purpose. To say to the world, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you all your sins. Christ has died for this too and was raised to life for your justification, was raised to life for you to be declared forgiven, not guilty. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about and a lot of money trying to do evangelism when this is really what it's all about. Christ's church proclaiming the, the forgiveness of sins. This is what Christ wants people to know. This is the peace he wants people to experience. This is the peace he wants you to live in every day of your life. And so, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'm sending you with this, this message of peace. Forgiveness that is yours to believe. Forgiveness that is yours to share. God bless you as you do. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.